our retail media conference remade returns in less than three weeks time uber cartology coles 360 and david jones are among our speakers sharing their journeys into retail media You'll also hear from Nine for the first time as they explain the concepts behind their coming new offering, Retail X. Come to Sydney on October the 11th to hear from the most authoritative voices the retail media world has to offer. Go to remade.net.au now to secure your ticket today. The Unmakers. Welcome to The Unmakers a series in which we talk to people who are remaking the media and marketing world. We'll meet the startups, the troublemakers and the dreamers who've looked at the communications industry and are trying to find a better way. Before you remake it, you've got to unmake it. I'm Tim Burrows. And I'm Sajid Alzadi. We're speaking today to one of the pioneers of programmatic advertising. Back in the day, Brian Kelly was co-founder of AppNexus, which nowadays sits within Microsoft's Xander. Now, there were plenty of people who would argue that programmatic turned out not to have been a net positive for the world. Kelly's new business, Scope 3, is trying to do something about that putting a focus on the environmental impact of the advertising supply chain. We began by asking Brian about the real impacts of advertising on the environment. Well, if you look at it at the most macro level, advertising influences trillions of dollars of consumer spend globally. If you think we live in a a consumerist society, um, I think you can attribute a lot of that back to advertising. on a more direct basis, the advertising industry funds the media industry. So if you think of the biggest technology companies in the world, Google, Meta, Apple, even Amazon, these companies make a huge portion of their revenue. In, in Google and Meta's case, almost all of their revenue from advertising. And so if you think about how many servers, how many data centers, you know, just how vast their investments are in real world uh, technology and and water and energy, that's a pretty significant impact that advertising has on the environment we all live in. Yes, I guess we've seen a lot of headlines around the sort of the Bitcoin mining side of things, but they're not the only ones who use servers, of course. Um, and I suppose you, so, so you obviously come from the technology side of the advertising industry. Do you have a point of view on the impact of um, digital advertising versus um, old school media like, you know, newspapers, television, etc. Because I, I guess in my mind's eye, it feels like, you know, all of those dead trees of newsprint surely must have the biggest impact. But I'm not sure if that's a fair impression or not. Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Um, and I think my naive perspective was the same as yours, which is that, you know, real things must have more impact than virtual things. And I think this, this illusion that the cloud, you know, is this fluffy place, you know, in the air, um, is actually not accurate that the cloud is a bunch of big warehouses full of servers that use a huge amount of energy and cooling power. I mean, everything digital, not just the phone in your hand or the TV on the wall, how that content is generated, 
you know, especially if it's AI and uses these, you know, GPUs, these graphics processing units that use an immense amount of power, everything digital is actually physical. And when you think about that, you know, think about the recycling of a newspaper. You know, yes, that tree does get cut down. Yes, it gets processed and turns into a newspaper, but you recycle it and we can plant new trees. Um, it's not obvious when you start thinking about the full life cycle of print versus the full life cycle of a device, whether it's actually more efficient. And in many cases, digital clearly is far less efficient than the physical equivalents. So if I hear a, and you know, I think I am increasingly hearing this, if I hear a media company claim to be net zero or carbon neutral and 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 you know that that does feel like there's a drumbeat or at least people announcing that by a certain year in the future they will be what does that actually mean and should i be skeptical well if you think about what that implies it implies that you've measured not just all the direct fuel that you burn you know with your smelter i don't think many Media companies have smelters, but imagine they do. Um, but you know the electricity you use in your offices or your printing presses, the fuel you use for your delivery vans, if you're in the news industry um, or magazines and, and through the mail, all of these are easy to measure. The thing is that your supply chain also counts. So just because you use a vendor to do your content management system or you use a vendor for you know, a, a contractor to develop IT services for you. Those count too. And the, the challenge we have is that starting to measure all of these indirect emissions throughout these very complex value chains. You know, if you're a, you make candy, you know, you're talking about the chocolate, the cocoa bean farmers, the cacao bean farmers in Ivory Coast. You know, this is harder and harder and harder to measure. So the idea that first off, we could even measure the number. I mean, to get to net zero, you have to measure and then remove that much carbon. But if we're not measuring accurately, that's a really difficult claim to make. The other thing I'll say is that the future is a long time from now. I mean, maybe it's not, but it's easy to make claims about where we're going to be in 10 years. But somebody else is probably going to be the CEO of most of these companies 10 years from now. And it sounds great in a press release to say 10 years from now, we're going to solve these problems. I guess my concern is that since we can't fully measure these emissions, we, we don't even know what we're talking about. My company is called Scope 3, which is the environmental term for supply chain emissions. And the reason I name the company Scope 3 is because it's actually the most important problem to solve in every global supply chain, is if we can't measure our supply chains, if we can't measure Scope 3 accurately, we, we really can't solve the global environmental problem facing us. Um, so that's sort of my, I think you're, you're right to be a little bit skeptical or cynical because these, these are almost impossible promises to make. And let me give you a real world example that, that might make it helpful. What if we didn't have scales? What if there was no way to know how much that I weigh? And if I say to you, I'm going to lose 10 pounds over the next 10 years. And you said, well, that's amazing. Congratulations. That's awesome. But I have no way to know my current weight. How can I honestly promise that? And how can you track my progress? And I can keep saying, like, I'm committed to this. Like, trust me, I'm, I'm on a diet. But you can't, I can't measure it. You can't measure it. You can't hold me accountable. And at some point, like, 
this is sort of a, an empty claim I'm making unless we have really accurate measurement and ways to track progress and ways to see that true commitment to the diet that I'm supposedly on. And just a follow-up question, and then I'll throw to Sergio. Um, Will you be as able to measure the offsetting steps that people take as you are on measuring their impact? Because I, I, and I suppose that almost comes from my kind of, I don't know, um, I guess skeptical is maybe the right, but you know, this, this, the, my skeptical consumer view is, yes, I, I always tick that box when I book my flight that says, you know, offset my flight for, you know, $2.40 or whatever. And I, I sort of have to take it on trust that Qantas are going to plant a tree or whatever it is. Um, but how, but, and, and that's the offsetting step, having hopefully measured the impact in the first place. Um, do you, do you see yourself having a role in that part of the chain as well? Well, I mean, if our mission is to systemically decarbonize media and advertising, then I think 90 something percent of our impact will be reducing the use of energy, the use of resources, the use of water. And then maybe at the end, there'll be a, a bit that we could go try to remove from the environment. Um, that's certainly not what we do as a business, but I respect the fact that if you look at any environmental assessment, even if we stop putting carbon into the environment today, that's not going to make temperatures go down. We have to remove carbon as so we do need carbon removal. So the, the challenge with offsetting as a mindset is it kind of implies that we can keep putting carbon in as long as we offset to get it out. Offsets are different than removals. And you mentioned planting a tree. Well, does that tree stay alive? Does that tree actually grow for three years? And then what happens when it grows? Does it get cut? Does it get burned? There's all these forest fires all around the world, including here. And those just put that carbon right back in the environment. New York City, where I live, had awful, terrible smog. The worst pollution in the whole world was in New York for a couple of weeks this summer. And that was, I forget the number, but like a trillion tons or something of carbon that was released from Canadian forests. Anybody who took any offsets or any credit for any tree in Canada should put that back to zero because all of that carbon went straight back into the environment. So I think that's the issue. Now, there's some really interesting and innovative companies that are trying to find ways to actually get that carbon out of the environment permanently. And actually in Western Australia, there's a company called InterEarth, who I met when I was here last year, that is actually growing trees like eucalyptus and other fast growing trees. And then they bury them so that they can't actually burn. And the other interesting thing about this is um, instead of having to have these huge forests, which take a lot of land mass that we can't use for you know, farming or other things, they actually can put it all underground and use far less land as a resource. And so that's an example as an innovation coming from Australia, but that might be a way we could actually say with high confidence that that is sequestered for hundreds or thousands of years. And there's a lot of science where they're actually testing it to see how much is being lost because you don't want pests to eat it because now it's back in the environment, right? I know this is all sort of scientific and, and stuff we have to think about, but any any of these casual claims uh, are really dangerous. And I think coming from the media industry myself and advertising, um, we don't always take these things too seriously because it's just advertising, like uh, viewability, attention, fraud, like privacy. You know, these aren't going to. You know, someone said to me we're not saving lives. Well, when it comes to the environment, 
we kind of are. If you look at the amount of health and um, disruption and immigration, all these horrible human problems from climate change, we kind of are saving lives. And I think we all have to have a higher standard for all of these claims, for measurement, for making promises, for doing removal. Um, I would love to go talk to Qantas and say, how confident are you that Tim's $2 actually was worth it versus you know, sustainable aviation fuel, which is probably three or $400 um, in equivalent amounts? You probably don't want to pay $300 <laughs> to offset your flight. But if that's the only viable alternative, you know, burying trees in the ground might be $75 or $100. Like we need to we need to have some real answers and some real conviction that what we do is actually saving the world and not just making ourselves feel good. So Brian, you previously founded a commodity trading platform, Waybridge, and a programmatic platform, AppNexus. What expertise around carbon emissions have those businesses fostered? Well, I think that if you look at scope three as sort of the combination of those two things, um, inventing programmatic advertising um, means that I really do know how the digital advertising works. I know where all of these complex supply chains go. I know how some of the most complex businesses in the world actually use servers and use energy to make decisions about ads. So that's a really important bit of expertise if you want to try to model and measure one of the most complex industries in the world, uh, which is digital advertising. And then Waybridge was eye-opening to me because we were trying to track real-world supply chains. Uh, as an example, how does copper go from Chile onto a boat through the Panama Canal up to Florida, get put into a warehouse, and then moved onto trains or trucks and taken to a factory? Trying to track those journeys and understand the carbon footprint as material moves is really challenging. And actually, the technology that we use at Scope 3 to model these complex supply chains is called a digital twin. And with real-world supply chains and factories, what you do is you make a digital model of the entire supply chain so you can do scenarios. You can say, well, what if instead of using a boat, we used a train? You, you, can't, you don't want to do that experiment in the real world. Um, I don't think there are actually trains from Chile to Florida, but you, know, you get the idea. We're making a digital twin of the internet. We're actually modeling the internet um, with a separate, more effective model of how these pieces fit. So on one side from AppNexus, how does this industry work? And the other side from Waybridge, how do we model supply chains in the real world? And if you put those together, you get scope three. Right. And what sorts of reduction strategies have you seen advertising businesses undertake after having access to your data? Well, the secret to reduction is it has to make business sense. So I, I think Mark Pritchard from Procter & Gamble made a, a great statement. He said, you know, our job is to, you know, be the best in our category and be as sustainable as possible. And he said, we can't do it in the opposite order. You know, we can't be sustainable and then try to win our category because then our business doesn't work. Our business has to be first. And we also want to do a ton for the environment. I love that. And so I think as a consumer, if I wanted to cut my carbon footprint, the easiest way to do that without changing my standard of living is to cut waste. What am I buying that I don't need? 
you know, leaving lights on when I'm not in a room. That's waste. There's literally no value in having the lights on. So for advertisers, the same conversation is really important. And there's some, some great technologies like measuring attention. You know, does anyone actually see that ad? Your eyeballs go there. If not, let's not buy it. And in both those cases, when we reduce waste, it's actually good for the environment because I'm not wasting the energy needed for that. But it's also good for my budget. I don't need to waste money on that. And so little things, you know, using, not using plastic bottles or turning off the lights, there's direct equivalence in the advertising industry. And our advice to advertisers is just to measure what you're using and then look at it against metrics. Like, is this high carbon and low impact? Stop buying it. But if it's low carbon and high impact, buy more of it. So it's, it's a really easy way to think about it is less waste, good for the environment, good for your pocketbook. I'd like to pick up on something you just mentioned, actually, which I do find quite intriguing. Um, this idea of wastage, because obviously that's always been a concept in media. This, I, you know, one of the, the the most cliched advertising statements of all time, of course, is my. I know that fifty percent of my budget is wasted, but I don't know which fifty percent. Until you you mentioned that thought just now, though, I'd never actually thought about the concept of having discipline about where you put your advertising budget and avoiding wastage, then joining the dots to the impact. Um, I wonder if you could just talk a little bit more to the that idea of kind of wastage when it kind of comes to your media mix modeling. Yeah. And I, I actually think that 50% of advertising is wasted um, statement is one of the most damaging statements in the history of advertising. Because what it what it's become is an excuse not to worry about waste. And it's like, yeah, it's just, it's just wasted. And I think when that initially came out, it was because it was more like half the consumers that see my ads won't care. And I can't change that because I'm on a billboard or I'm on TV or a newspaper and everybody sees the same ad. So I, I just, I don't have the tools to actually find the right consumer. But that is not the case today. We have so much more control over our advertising and where it goes, especially in digital, but increasingly in print and other channels, we are able to be more thoughtful about how we target our ads. And so if I don't want to waste my money, I want to put my advertising in front of consumers who care. But that's not even the kind of waste I'm talking about. I'm talking about waste where no consumer ever sees it. And I'll give you an example of that from the, the web world. Um, you've probably seen those ads on websites that are a video that's sticky, that, that stays at the bottom of your screen and just runs some video. I don't know about you, but I can't look at that video. Like my eyeballs will not go there. They immediately go back to the content, but that is using a ton of bandwidth on your computer just to spin and show videos. And it's costing an advertiser a lot of money, possibly who thinks this is a, you know, a video ad that will have the same impact as on a TV. And so that kind of waste is, it's annoying to the consumer, which is why your eyeballs can't go there. It's not effective because no one's looking at it. And 
it's actually pulling money away from high quality content, journalism potentially, or you know, professionally produced content that should be funded by that ad budget. And so I think there's a lot of societal and environmental reasons that that kind of waste needs to stop. We need to be more thoughtful about how we invest so that our dollars are actually being used in ways that align with how we want the world to work. Which I suppose does sort of almost raise the philosophical question about just the the programmatic advertising world. Um, now, you know, as, as said, you mentioned, you 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 ran at Nexus. Do you do you think that programmatic advertising has helped make the world a better or worse place? I think that programmatic advertising, like almost any new technology, can be used for good or it can be used very ineffectively. And I think that a lot of the way that programmatic has taken over the world, I mean, this is a hundred billion dollar industry that funds a lot of quality content, but it also funds a lot of waste. And so I think where we are today in the development of programmatic, it's not doing what I would have aspired for it to do. Um, it's caused privacy issues. It's caused national security issues. It's caused commoditization of quality content. I think there's a lot of things that aren't great. However, seatbelts were only required in cars in the 1970s. That's 50 years that it took for us to realize that maybe people shouldn't be flying out of their windshields. You know, speed limits didn't exist until the oil crisis in the 70s. So there's a, a whole phase of automobiles where we didn't have the maturity as a civilization to actually use them in ways that would protect people's lives. And so to me, that's where we are with programmatic. We're still in the earlier phases where we haven't figured out the right safety regulations, if you will, to make this good for consumers, good for advertisers, good for the kind of publishers we want to fund, and good for the environment. And sort of why I'm on this mission. Like, I don't think programmatic should be thrown out the window just because it's not perfect. But I also don't think we should just accept cars without seatbelts or highways without speed limits or, or leaded gasoline. I mean, those are horrible, horrible things, but we were able to fix them. So I want to be part of solving this problem and making advertising, programmatic advertising, the internet, you know, the future of media, all of these things matter to us civilizationally. And I want to be part of that solution as much as I was part of creating that problem. Well, let's, um, this is probably a, a, a good time to, to pivot the topic slightly to um, the concept of the, I think you used the phrase collaborative sustainability platform in the last few days. This idea of, I, I suppose, reaching out a bit more widely to the industry. Can you, can you talk a bit more to what that actually is as a concept? Yeah. So the idea of data collaboration is something that uh, I've learned about over the past couple of years. There's been uh, companies like Snowflake in the cloud database world is building a, a sort of shared database where different companies can permission data to each other in a very efficient way. Or LiveRamp in the advertising space that helps advertisers and publishers safely share data about a, a given consumer without privacy issues. And this idea of working together really resonates with me that it's not a competitive interaction between buyers. I mean, maybe during upfronts and trading, you know, I get a better deal than you, but, but really we're working together to try to deliver something for the consumer 
that changes their behavior, changes their perception of a brand. That's good for the publisher and it's good for the advertiser. So we actually are collaborative in these supply chains. Even the ad tech vendors that work, they're trying to make advertising work better. So every single company actually wants to work together. We see the same thing with sustainability. We're all on a sustainability journey. I doubt anyone listening to this podcast is like, I'm just not a fan of earth. You know, like I'm out, I'm going to Mars. Well, maybe Elon Musk, right? But everybody else is kind of stuck here. And so I feel like this idea that the data that any entity in this supply chain has, if if the goal, going back to our, our previous point is, how do we get all the data we need to make really good decisions? How do we get the data to measure and commit to these changes? Well, wouldn't it be nice if the publishers could share that data with the advertisers? So instead of the advertisers having to guess or do all of this work to aggregate this data, what if it just worked? What if there was no overhead that in the same way that when I buy media from you, I get an invoice for the dollars and reports of the activity, the impressions or whatever, why can't I get the carbon? Why can't we make carbon an, an, an integral part of how media is bought and sold? Because that's the idea of this collaborative sustainability platform. Take the sustainability data from the entire supply chain, put it in one place so everyone has access to it and make it always on, make it just part of how things are done so that we don't have to ask the you know, complex data questions of how do I get the data? It's what do you want to do about it? How do you want to change your behavior to help the environment and hopefully help the performance of your media? Now, um, you, you, as well as having a mission, you are a business. I wonder if you can explain your own business model. How do you actually make money? Is it is it clipping the the the, the ticket each time somebody goes through this process, or do you charge a fee, or how does it work? Yeah, I, you know, I thought a lot about what was the most ethical business model. Um, we are a purpose driven business. We're a U.S. public benefit corporation, meaning we have in our charter that we have to do environmental things. That's not an option. Um, So I worry about anything that is disaligned with our mission of decarbonization. And so as an example, if we charge more, the more you use our services, what if some companies say, I'm only going to use a little, like I'm worried about that. So to date, a lot of our, our revenue is licensing our data to companies on a all you can eat basis. You pay us a monthly fee and you can use the data however you want to. And I feel like that encourages always on because once you license it, there's no reason not to use it for everything. Um, This new platform we're launching, this collaborative sustainability platform, I think will be the same. I think this will be an enterprise tool that we can license to all of the different companies in the supply chain so that they can contribute all their data to their partners without having additional fees for for additional use. So that's my vision. Um, the reality is that in this industry, there's a lot of different ways that companies like to operate. So we do have partnerships where we operate on a CPM basis and a per impression basis, uh, because that's how we have partners who want to work. But I think at the end of the day, that's, you know, that that's a good way to get started for a limited cost. But I'm guessing a lot of these will flip into more of a subscription basis at scale. 
And uh, just on on the the topic of the business, so when you started it a couple of years back, uh, you did that with, I think, a $20 million seed funding round. Um, How is the business going at this stage? Are are you yet profitable? We're not profitable. Uh, We are venture-backed. I think going fast is part of the point, I think, of a sustainability business in 2023. Uh, I have an immense sense of urgency. Uh, I've been fortunate to be here in Sydney for two unseasonably hot days. And I know we're not supposed to confuse weather with climate, but it's been really hot. And, you know, I don't think we can wait for, you know, us to sort of organically grow this business. I think we should go as fast as we can to get this data in the hands of the industry so we can make change today. Uh, So that's actually where venture capital is really powerful, is if you want to go fast and you want to go big and you want to be a global company, then venture says here's some money go 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 and that's what we're trying to do so you mentioned that you used an example of you know the history of vehicles only being optimized for humanity's benefit in the last few decades well why has the industry's approach to decarbonization traditionally been so fragmented is it largely due to the relatively younger age of the industry well i'll just say that decarbonization for any industry is an incredibly new topic. You know, environmentalists have been talking about climate change for 25 years. Uh, But I would say this has been on the radar in any way for this industry only in the past two years. Uh, And I think that the fragmented approach is partially because for every big company in the world that is starting to make commitments or starting to think about sustainability, this is not a concerted, consistent effort for anyone yet. There's investor pressure. There's employee pressure. Um, there's there's people who care, but this is not at the same level as other initiatives. We also compete with things like diversity, which certainly in the U.S. has been a big focus for the past few years. And if this gets put in the social responsibility segment of a business, then it's a nice to have. It's not a requirement. Now, I think this is something that's fundamental to being a good business. And reducing waste, meaning saving money and being more efficient, feels like the core business. And so that's part of this transition. So the reason we see pockets is because the end buyers, the the brands and advertisers themselves, are at different points in their maturity. And we don't have regulation in place in most places. I know there's Australian uh, corporate sustainability reporting requirements coming in a couple of years. The closer we get, the more this becomes a must same thing in the EU, same thing in California. So it's not the industry's youth. It's actually our societal, our civilizational commitment or, or our, our panic that we might have to do something about this. That's the problem. And we're almost inventing the tools, techniques, methodology, standards faster than we've ever seen before. Think about corporate financial accounting. I mean, double entry accounting has been around for 100 years. But guess what? We still had Enron. And that was that was after like eighty years of these of these standards. You know, we can't afford an Enron crisis in twenty thirty. Like, we need to get this right now in a way that actually ties out to the environmental impact we're having. So, it's urgent. It's hard. It's totally decentralized and and disconnected. And we have to do it anyway. And let's isolate Australia for a moment. Do you have any insights on how Australia is performing in terms of? carbon emissions or decarbonization in this industry? Yeah. Well, I think as a as a country, 
Australia has more dependence on coal than most others. Um, I know there's a lot of renewable energy coming and there's batteries coming. I know the latest administration has made a huge amount of progress. And even just walking around, I see a lot more, you know, carbon neutral stores and, and green and sustainable interest. So I think it's happening here as a, as a country. Um, in the industry, there's been a lot of excitement and we've seen, you know, agencies, we've seen advertisers, we've seen publishers and platforms, we've seen progress. But I wouldn't say everyone has gone all the way to making this course of business yet. Uh, and and that's, that's okay. I, I do think that compared to say the United States, Australia is in a similar place, um, probably a little behind Europe and ahead much of the rest of the world. Um, but part of why I'm here this week is to do education, to do evangel- evangelism, to try to help everyone understand not only is this an urgent problem, but this is a problem that we can take action on today. Like there are solutions in market. And some of that's selfish for me as a, as a business person, but it's also selfish for me as a human wanting this to happen faster. The biggest advantage that Australia has is it feels like everybody knows everybody. You know, it, it feels like there's a group of people who could come together and say, let's make this happen. And it could happen very quickly. We're not talking about a, a massive, diverse, you know, country in the same way that, you know, maybe the United States is, you know, there's, there's a group of people here who could make change happen fast. And I'd love to see it. And Brian, a final question that we always ask all of our guests on the podcast. What do your critics say about you? And what do your supporters say about you? Well, I think that my critics would say, isn't it a bit hypocritical since you invented this industry that you're now trying to fix it? Uh, And I get that. You know, it's like you spilled the milk and now you're trying to get credit for cleaning it up. Um, And that's a fair criticism. You know, I did have something to do with this problem. Um, I think my supporters would say, that that's authentic. That's an accountable mission that, that I feel responsible for what I've done and I, I want to make it better. Um, and that it doesn't matter why the milk got spilled. It's got to get cleaned up and there's not really anyone else raising their hand to go do it. And there's certainly no one who knows more about this industry and how to fix it than I do. Um, so I guess that's just two sides of the same coin. Brian, thank you so much for your time. Today's podcast was edited by Abe's Audio. You can access all of Unmade's content and archives by subscribing to us today. Head to unmade.media to become a supporter of independent journalism. We'll be back with more soon. Toodle pep. The Unmakers. Podcast edit by Abe's Audio.